So what I had done differently, not get arrested, <laughs> kidnapped by the police and thrown in a Nicaraguan dungeon, I would say. <laughs> I would, I would uh, recommend avoiding that experience if at all possible. This is Convicted Across Borders, a podcast co-produced by Focus Features and LA Times Studios brand team and funded by Focus Features in support of the film Stillwater. I'm your host, Marsha Clark. I've spent decades as a prosecutor and a defense attorney in the United States, but each year, more than 3,000 Americans are in prison outside the United States. Many are wrongfully convicted, and many are told they will never return home. Imagine what you would do in that horrific situation. Who could you count on to come to your rescue? In this five-part series, we're hearing real-life, first-hand accounts of American citizens whose international journeys turned into epic nightmares. For Jason Perkal, Nicaragua had become his dream home away from home. After spending the past eight years in the country, he'd become a successful real estate agent, and he met and married the love of his life and welcomed their first child, a son. Then, in 2010, without any signs or warnings, everything changed. Jason was arrested by Nicaraguan authorities and charged with international money laundering and drug trafficking. Jason had no criminal history. There was no evidence against him, no connections to his co-defendants. In fact, they all told the judge they'd never seen Jason in their life. But that didn't matter. In August 2011, Jason was convicted and sentenced to 22 years in prison. This is Jason's story. My name is Jason Perkel. I am 44 years old, and I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, and currently living in the Seattle area. I would describe myself as someone who is adventurous, that's really dedicated to family, and really community-oriented. I have two younger sisters, Janice and Jamie, so we were always known as the three J's growing up. We're all two years apart, and we were always very close. We did everything together and just had a really close relationship growing up. And so it wasn't any surprise to me that my champion throughout this ordeal was Janice. I'm Janice Perakel. I'm 40-something years old. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I'm Jason Perakel's younger sister. I'm actually the middle, and my younger sister, Jamie, is the baby of the family. Jason was definitely our leader. Jamie and I were always following in his heels. We grew up in kind of a a tight, close-knit community, and it was very safe. So we would go, you know, roam around the neighborhood and go to neighbors' houses and friends' houses and parks and everything together. And it was very much three of you take care of each other, watch out for each other. That was how we grew up. So all three of us always kind of assumed that we would go explore the world. That was just how we were raised was the world is a place to be explored, go explore it. The way that I always describe Jason is that he has an adventurous spirit. He always thought There's more to do out there, and I'm going to go do it. Jason's adventurous spirit is what led him to become a Peace Corps volunteer. 
After graduating with degrees in economics and zoology from the University of Washington, Jason wanted to go to vet school, but needing additional experience, joined the animal husbandry program of the Peace Corps. In 2002, they sent me to Nicaragua underneath the umbrella of sustainable agriculture, and I just fell in love with the country. It's tropical paradise, really laid-back lifestyle, and the people are very humble. I never felt like I was in any danger. I used to backpack all over the country with just me and my dog. When Jason moved to Nicaragua, he was very much in love with a country that didn't shock me. That was sort of what he was looking for as far as a community-based place where he could feel a part of something. After his Peace Corps service ended, Jason went back to Seattle long enough to save some money to buy a truck so he could drive himself back to Nicaragua. He began working in the real estate industry to put himself through vet school. He also fell in love with more than the community and laid-back lifestyle. I met my wife, Scarlett, in Managua. Uh, she was working at a Toyota dealership in the parts department and going to school at night for industrial engineering and then modeling part-time on the side. I walked into the Toyota dealership. I needed some parts for my, my Toyota uh, 4Runner and um, walked up to the counter. There's 30 guys and this beautiful woman there. So I, of course, went up to the woman and eventually got her cell phone number when I came and picked up the parts and then invited her to the first date and the rest is history. After six months of dating, Jason and Scarlett were married in 2006. The following year, they would welcome their first son, Jabu. By 2010, in addition to real estate, Jason began partnering with large landholders to develop properties in a more sustainable way implementing green alternative energy solutions with a community focus. So I had great relationships, really felt like I was embedded in the community. My wife was Nicaraguan. Our firstborn son, Jabu, was born there, and I really thought I was part of the community. And then, on November 11, 2010, Jason's entire world was turned upside down. There were no warning signs of what would happen next for Jason and his family. Nothing to prepare Jason for the nightmare that was about to invade his life in paradise that he had worked so hard to build. I was sitting in my beachfront office. I had just sent the secretary to the bank to make a withdrawal. So I was alone in the office, and it was about 4 o'clock or so in the afternoon. And all of a sudden, 10 to 15 guys in full black Kevlar, assault rifles, masks, came storming in the office. I thought I was being robbed until a guy who was in plain clothes walked in and he had a badge hanging around his neck and he asked for me by name. Jason was then instructed to sit down as he was held at gunpoint for hours. No warrant, no questions, no answers. They would not tell me why they were there. They wouldn't let me call my attorneys or my family or the embassy. They just held me there at gunpoint. They were searching the office. They confiscated computers and files and stuff like that, but they wouldn't tell me why they were taking anything. And they confiscated my vehicle, my truck as well. And after probably about five or six hours, they eventually put me in handcuffs and put me in the back of a pickup truck and then took me off to the local jail. At no point during all of this was Jason able to contact his family about what was happening. Little did he know, they were finding out for themselves. My mom had been in Nicaragua visiting Jason, and she had been at his house 
when the police went to his office to arrest him. And at the same time, the police showed up to the house and held my mom and Jason's three-year-old son at gunpoint for six hours and wouldn't tell them what was going on. And when that was over, my mom called me and said, the police have taken your brother and they won't tell us where he is. I remember the sound of concern and worry in her voice, but you know, she wasn't screaming and crying or and carrying on or anything like that. And in my mind, I remember thinking, this is no big deal. It's just a mistake. I'll have a conversation with the prosecutor. Everything will be fine. Don't worry about it, mom. I remember thinking like, this is just a big misunderstanding. Jason was taken to the San Juan del Sur jail where he was detained for hours, still with no explanation as to why. Then, in the middle of the night, Jason was pulled out of the jail and thrown into a small van. There was a bunch of other guys in there, and the police were screaming and yelling at everybody, really violent and aggressive, and they did this parade out of town with the van that we were in and police cars in front and back with lights going. Somehow, throughout all of this, Jason maintained composure and, like his sister Janice, kept telling himself this was a mistake and that it would all be sorted out. I figured it was just a case of mistaken identity, that they had the wrong person. You know, we had relationships all throughout the government, in the local government, all the way up, and so I had no idea what they were doing. They pulled over multiple times during that time. They were shouting and yelling. I couldn't understand exactly what they were saying. I caught a phrase of scorpions of society, like they were insulting us. And every time I looked up to, to try to read lips and understand what they were saying, they would yell to put your heads back down. And several times, like, I got hit in the back of the head with the butt of a gun. I got poked in the back with a sharp object. The other guys, I could hear them whispering that, you know, they're going to shoot us in the field. After nearly two hours of this terrifying ordeal, the van finally stopped at its destination, Rivas Jail, where Jason would spend the next several nights. And then the same thing over again in the middle of the night. They took us, me and a bunch of other people, all the way up to El Chapote in Managua, which is the underground torture facility used by the police. And so when the guys again started getting nervous and whispering we're going to El Chapote, you know, I started getting nervous again too. Like, it was just so surreal. And then we got there and they process each one of us individually. They take me down underneath the ground and they strip me naked and put me in a cell and there's trash and frogs and insects moving around on the floor and garbage and piss and shit. They just push me in there. They shut the door and there's no light. There's one brick open above the door that filters a little bit of light in. And then there's a hole in the ceiling that's maybe two feet by two feet, but it's got a grate over the top of it and then zinc over the top of that. So it allows air to go in and out, but it's dark still. You can hear the prisoners next door. And then in the middle of the night, you could hear girls screaming that there's a snake in their cell. and. There's people being tortured down the hall. You could hear people screaming and yelling. As later I heard that they hooked people up to batteries and they beat people. So I sat there for, I don't know, three days or so, just waiting to figure out what was happening. During this time, Jason's mother returned to the U.S. and his sisters, Janice and Jamie, both flew to Nicaragua. 
the entire time, I remember talking to Jamie and planning out, oh, yeah, we'll just go find the prosecutor. We'll sit down. We'll have a grown-up conversation about this. Bring Jason home. Everything will be fine. And we got there and very quickly realized that everything was not going to be fine. We spent the first week just traveling around the country, going from prison to prison to try and find him. The prisons were moving him from place to place to try to hide him from his attorneys and from his family. And then one day we're sitting at his house with his wife and his son, and the phone rings, and it's Jason. Jason used an underground cell phone to contact his wife and tell them where he was being held. But it would be days before Jason was finally put in front of a judge, and for the first time, he would hear the charges against him. They put me in front of a judge, and there was a bunch of other people there as well. And that's when I finally heard the charges against me. The charges that they said in front of the judge were international drug trafficking, but there was not one gram of drugs in the case, in the entire case. And then they said international money laundering, and all of our funds came through bank wire transfers, and we had accountants that kept the books and everything for us in Nicaragua. So. That didn't make any sense, and then they said organized crime, and with 10 people that I've never met before. The other individuals that Jason had been grouped with, he would later come to find out, were politically involved, and Jason had now become a political prisoner. The other people in my case were political candidates against the Sandinistas, and like a mayoral candidate in the town that we were living in. How I got grouped in with these other guys, I have no idea. We weren't politically involved. So I became a political prisoner, even though I wasn't involved in politics. And with limited resources, we had to take a different strategy of trying to secure my freedom. And so we never found out the actual reason why I was put in this situation. Jason was right that he was the wrong guy. But that didn't matter now. After finally hearing the charges that he was being falsely accused of, his cruel new reality began to sink in. Jason was transported from the El Chipote torture facility to La Modelo, the maximum security prison in Nicaragua. That would become Jason's home for the next 22 months. While imprisoned in Nicaragua, Jason was determined to survive and return home to his family as they fought for his innocence. The theme of innocence is at the heart of the new Focus Features film, Stillwater. Here's Stillwater star Abigail Breslin speaking about her character in the film. I think anybody can relate to the pain of if somebody lies about you, but this is just so magnified in such dire circumstances. So I did a lot of research about how isolating it is to be in prison because I can't even fathom that. See the Focus Features film, Stillwater, directed by Tom McCarthy and starring Matt Damon, only in theaters July 30th. Now, back to Jason's story. For weeks, Jason had been held in several prisons all around Nicaragua without even knowing what the charges were against him. He told himself it was only a matter of time before it was discovered that it was a terrible case of mistaken identity and he would be freed. Instead, he was presented with a list of false charges that would have him spend the rest of his life behind bars. Jason was now realizing that this nightmare might not be over as soon as he thought. 
It was scary, like, okay, I guess I'm going to be in prison. You know, it's going to take longer for them to sort out anything because I can't even contact my family. I started doing push-ups and pull-ups and, you know, like, uh, okay, I better get get buff here to go to prison. <laughs> just trying to prepare myself mentally. You're just sitting there in the dark, essentially, and your eyes adjust, and the cockroaches are coming and sitting next to you, and there's not much you can do but <laughs> just, you know, try to breathe. Meanwhile, Jason's sisters were quickly trying to do everything they could on the outside to help their brother. With Janice learning how to navigate a legal system in a country she only knew of from her brother. Before Jason was arrested and convicted, I was a civil litigator. So I was working for a big firm in Seattle doing civil litigation, so fighting over money. I didn't have any background in criminal law. I didn't have any background in Nicaraguan law. I didn't even speak Spanish. I'm the big brother and was trying to direct things from Nicaragua prison of like, oh, you need to talk to this person, you need to talk to that person, here's how we need to do this. But really, I had no control and didn't really understand what was going on. And so I really had to just kind of let my sister Janice eventually run my entire case for me and let go of that and have a lot of trust in her. I never questioned Jason's innocence, not once. Not just because he's my brother and I know him, but also because the government never gave me anything that made me question Jason's innocence. When I look at it now, you know, it's, if it wasn't so terrifying, it would be comical what the prosecution did here. The prosecution's case against Jason wasn't about evidence. It wasn't about a rule of law or an actual crime that occurred. It was just about getting the conviction. For the first six months, Janice was also spinning her wheels trying to find anybody who would listen to Jason's case. He was not a pretty white girl who was going to garner a lot of media attention. So... That became abundantly clear, and we needed to do something to humanize him. We needed people to see that he wasn't just a dark-skinned guy with tattoos and long hair. He was a father and a son and a brother and a friend and who he was as a person. Janice credits a reporter named Brandy Cruz, based out of Seattle, who flew to Nicaragua to interview Jason in person and reveal the conditions that Jason was enduring as an innocent man. While his sister Janice was trying to help show the world what kind of a person her brother really was, Jason was in prison, with only his hope and belief in his innocence to help him survive. You just have this innate hope that, well, I don't belong here. I didn't do what they are accusing me of doing. And so this is just a huge mix-up, and it'll get fixed, and everything will get straightened out, and I'll be released. And so it's just finding the right person to listen to, like, what's going on. As a prisoner, Jason was given little to no food and no clean drinking water. In the first two months he was in prison, Jason lost 40 pounds. His gums were bleeding his hair was falling out, and he struggled with mental issues. Yeah, I felt lonely a lot, even though you're in these prison situations where, you know, I was usually in a 12 by 15 foot cell with 9 to 12 other guys, but you still feel very lonely. The communication Jason was able to have with his sister and his family through his use of an underground cell phone was vital to his survival. 
even when there was only so much that could be said out of fear of being caught. There was a lot of sensitive information with my case that she was not even able to tell me about. And like oftentimes she would say on an underground cell phone, she'd say, oh yeah, tomorrow we have this meeting with this really important person. I can't tell you who it is. Um, and so it's like, what? Okay, <laughs> is that good or bad? How did the meeting go, you know? And so it was very cryptic. So we never knew whether the cell phones were gonna be tapped or not. So we were really careful about the information that we were sharing on the cell phone. But at the same time, I wanted him to know that we were fighting for him, that every single day we were fighting hard for him and that we weren't just leaving him in that prison to die. Even when he wasn't fully aware of everything that his sister and others were doing to free him, there were reminders of the community of support that was building, including over 100,000 signatures on a petition calling for Jason's release to the Nicaraguan consulate. This gave Jason strength and hope that he would be with his family again. I knew that my sister Janice was beating down every door that she could, and so she was able to get the California Innocence Project to take on my case and the Innocence Project Northwest also assisted. She had people from the FBI, uh, DEA, CIA, like anybody that she could connect into government offices that were retired and could lend their credibility to review the case. I would fly to Washington, D.C., and we would go from office to office talking about Jason and getting legislators to pay attention to the case and to sign on to letters to urge the government of Nicaragua to release Jason. But after months of horrendous conditions, Jason's health was deteriorating rapidly. While his sister and family were fighting on the outside to get him released, Jason was fighting to stay alive. I had huge digestive issues where I couldn't even stand up. My stomach got so hard I couldn't breathe, and the other prisoners had to carry me to the infirmary. They just gave me a shot of something in the butt and then like sent me back, and that happened four or five days in a row. Eventually, they took me to a public hospital and gave me a bunch of IV, and the doctor said, oh yeah, you need fruits and potable water in your diet. The prison guard said, thank you, and then took me back and nothing changed. Not only did things not change for Jason, they got far worse. There was a time where Jason was trying to boil some water because they didn't have drinkable water in the prison. And so they had this little makeshift hot plate, and he had put a pot of water to bring it to boil on the plate. And he went to try and pick up the pot, and the pot slipped, and the boiling water splashed all down his legs, and he suffered second-degree burns all down his legs. And he called me on the underground cell phone, and it wasn't at the normal time when he would usually call in the afternoon. And so I remember picking up the phone and going, hey, bud, what's going on? And he said, Janice, there's been an accident. And he just started to cry. And I remember tearing up myself because it's painful to hear your big brother crying because he's in pain. And we called the prison and we called the embassy and we called everybody that we knew. Our entire team 
was rallying to try and get him medical care. And in the prison infirmary, his skin was blistering up and they used a dirty needle to pop the blisters. And so he was getting infections in his legs and the prison was telling the embassy that he was fine, there were no blisters, there's no problem. And so we got my mom on a plane and sent her down there because they wouldn't let us bring a, a doctor into the prison. But because my mom is a doctor and his mom, she could come in as his mom. So she went in and Jason was developing sepsis. So she brought him antibiotics and taught him how to bandage his own wounds. And that's what saved his legs. Janice was able to put together an entire team working to get Jason freed with the help of Jason's attorney, Fabrice Gomez, and Eric Volz from the David House Agency. Volz himself had been wrongfully arrested and convicted in Nicaragua several years before Jason, and he'd spent 14 months in the same prison as Jason. He knew the battle that was ahead for Jason and his family. So we were just putting together all of these different pieces, and it was very much a scorched earth approach. Every day, all day, of finding people to support, finding media and social media, and, and just pushing the attention on Jason's case. There were no breaks, no vacations, no holidays. It was all about this thing is on fire, and this has to be my focus. I never knew what was going to happen first. I never knew if Jason was going to get out of prison or Jason was going to die in prison because of the conditions. So there was always that sense of I am racing the clock and I can't stop. So it was just a, a really, really intense and terrifying two years. What kept Jason going was the knowledge that his family was out there fighting for his freedom and that his little son desperately needed him to survive. I knew my family was out there fighting. My wife was bringing me food once a week or twice a week, staying by my side. And really, it was my son, uh, at that time, my only son, Jabu, our firstborn, um, that gave me hope. Jabu is a special needs child, and I knew that he would not have the same opportunities in life if I was not part of his life. And so I just knew I had to get out and get back to his side in order to provide him with the opportunities that I was afforded. The battle that was happening outside of the prison for Janice and Jason's family was also taking its toll. I remember one time sitting on my couch with my husband and just crying because I just felt like I can't do enough here. I am fighting every minute of every day in every way that I know how, and he's not walking out of that prison. And I just felt like I am broken and I can't do this. And my husband made a very good point, which is, you don't have a choice. I, I can't let my brother die in that prison. And so you just kind of have to keep going. That was... There, there wasn't another option there. Janice continued to push and push to get Jason's story heard. But at the end of the day, 
It was the media that got Jason's case the attention needed to bring him home. We were getting stalled out on the appeal again and again, and it was going on for months and months and months. And then the team decided that I was going to fly to Nicaragua and I was going to meet with the presiding judge in the appellate courts. I was going to say, the American media wants to know when you're going to give Jason a hearing on his appeal. So I said my line, and Jamie translated it into Spanish. And the judge gave me some, you know, non-answer answer. We, you know, said thank you and, and left. We go back to the hotel. Four hours later, we get a phone call. They've set the hearing for the appeal. They knew that the American press was watching and waiting, and that's ultimately what pushed this case over the edge to get Jason home. After nearly two years since his wrongful arrest, Jason was granted a hearing before a three-judge appellate panel where his appeal was granted. The panel ordered his release. Two days later, on September 14, 2012, Jason was a free man. While I was in prison, my residency card in Nicaragua expired. And so, like, how I was going to get out of the country was a big deal once I had my letter of freedom. And so Janice and the rest of the team worked diligently to, like, put in place a plan to get me out of the country. We were also scared of the police re-arresting me. The three-judge panel ended up releasing everybody in the case. And the other people in my case, again, Nicaraguans that are politically affiliated, at all of our hearings and everything, there was busloads of people waiting for all these Nicaraguans that were in my case to come out. And so there was a fear of me, the gringo, coming out first of being attacked. And so the prison decided to let all of those other guys out one by one. My attorney came in, put me in the back of a truck, and then we drove to some random hotel, stayed the night, and then scooted out via land in the morning to uh, Honduras up to Tegucigalpa and then flew out from there because we figured that the airports would be too too crowded with police in a potential re-arrest scenario. When Jason left Nicaragua, he returned to the Pacific Northwest where he grew up and where his wife and son were waiting for him to come home. When I first got out of prison, I was just overwhelmed with love. Just the ability to sleep in the same bed with my wife and my son, you know, with an elbow or a knee in my back or, you know, however, like, I can't go anywhere without sleeping with a, something, you know, an appendage over my head or somebody poking me in the back. I don't like being separated from my family at all. After 22 months in prison, Jason was finally reunited with his family. But now, Jason was met with a new set of challenges, making a home in a country he hadn't lived in for many years and having to rebuild his entire life from the ground up. I've watched Jason struggle for the last almost nine years now since he got out, just trying to rebuild his life. You know, he walked out of prison with the clothes on his back and his flip-flops. And since that time, he has gone to graduate school and started this company and created this bio-epoxy resin that he now has patents on and is getting attention from companies around the world in sustainability. He's doing amazing things because he's an amazing person. And so to watch him is 
is a source of pride. His persistence, his determination, his excitement about the world, that's what makes people stop and pay attention. Jason and his sister continue to work together to make positive change for others. She supports him with his company, Zilla Works, and he helps her with her nonprofit, the Forensic Justice Project, which is dedicated to correcting and preventing wrongful convictions like Jason's. I don't think that there are many people that have had to test their relationship with their siblings the way that Jason and I have had to test our relationship. We have been to hell and back and know that we would walk the other one home. As for Nicaragua, there still remains a possibility that the prosecutor there may file to reopen his case, which means for Jason, he can't travel outside the U.S. borders without fear of being arrested again. But that hasn't stopped Jason from doing all that he can to help others all over the world. You know, life is brutal, and it's how we respond to that. And the way that I've chosen to respond to that is by trying to help as many other people as I can. Everyone goes through hardships in life. And yeah, my situation may be a little bit different than what most people would go through in life, but we all go through hardships. And it's not so much what the hardship is, it's how our response to the hardship, how we choose to deal with those scenarios that really makes or breaks you. Next time on Convicted Across Borders, we hear one man's journey to Venezuela in pursuit of love only to be made into an international enemy by President Maduro. My parents had no idea what to do. I mean, imagine you wake up one morning and the paper hits your door and your son's, you know, one of the headlines as being a spy arrested in Venezuela for trying to start a civil war. Convicted Across Borders was created on behalf of Focus Features by LA Times Studios and Treefort and does not reflect the views of the Los Angeles Times, nor does it involve the editorial or reporting staffs of the Los Angeles Times. Executive producers are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman. Line producer is Oscar Guido. Written and produced by Matthew Kugler. Casting producer, Julie Burke. Tom Monahan is our senior audio engineer and sound supervisor with production and editing by Jasper Leak. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, and Justin Washington. I'm Marcia Clark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to raise awareness and get the word out so more people can hear these powerful and real stories. And be sure to watch Focus Features' new film, Stillwater, directed by Tom McCarthy and starring Matt Damon, in theaters July 30th. <laughs>